This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with James Thornton, founding CEO of Client Earth. James joined me to talk about his new book, Client Earth, and shared his story from US litigator to UK solicitor, representing the most important client of all, the Earth. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM with Amy Mullins. I'm delighted now to have with me from London, and he joins me via Skype, James Thornton, who is the CEO and founder of Client Earth. And he's also the co-author of the same titled book. And uh, the other co-author there is Martin Goodman, who is his husband. And uh, I'd like to welcome James now. Hi, James. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. I was really intrigued by this concept of a public interest environmental law organisation and even just the idea of a public interest environmental lawyer because although we have environmental law and environmental lawyers here, your organisation, Client Earth, offers a very diverse suite of offerings and it really does cover the full chronology as you outline in the book from the beginning of identifying a problem through science down to enforcing laws. So I will get to that point in a moment, but I was interested in your pre-story or history before you got to this point and it's quite illuminating. So first of all, we were just mentioning off air that your background originally when you were educated at Yale was in philosophy and I was particularly interested interested in how your education in philosophy before you went on to study law in a postgraduate sense influences you still today um, and the way you think and the way uh, you perceive the world? Well, it's a, that's a good and deep question. And the uh, I think the way it uh, influences me still is that uh, when you study philosophy, and I, w- I was studying the branch of philosophy uh, called epistemology, and what uh, you study there is the basically the question, how can you know anything? So uh, you are always examining how do I gain the evidence to make sense of the world? Who am I? What are my thoughts? Is the world real? Um, It sounds a bit esoteric, but it actually requires you to get very deeply into a skeptical and questioning uh, frame of mind and and analyzing everything that comes to you. And uh, that habit of analyzing everything and uh, of questioning everything is really what uh, I rely on in doing my sort of law because for me and for the lawyers who work with me, law isn't a passive thing where you just answer routine questions that people bring you, but instead it is a way of reconceiving how people relate to the world and what rules we should all be bound by and then how to make those rules work. Well, that is really interesting background. And as you just kind of referenced or uh, suggested, philosophy is such a diverse field in itself in the, in the types of questions you consider. And in terms of then moving on to your Juris Doctorate in law, you came from a law family. Well, your siblings are lawyers and as was your father. What led you to that point moving from philosophy? I can see there's definitely overlap in terms of the argumentative element that is in both, but what really was it that drove you to that? Well, um, and uh, yeah, I should say something about my dad and the dinner table because, uh, so I have three brothers, four boy family, and uh, we're all lawyers. And what happened around the dinner table is my, my father, my parents were wonderful, wonderful people. 
And uh, he was a law professor, and he taught by the Socratic method. And the Socratic method really is to ask questions, you know, uh, question after question after question. And, you know, I didn't realize until years later, looking back, that around the dinner table, he was training us all to be lawyers just because that's how he thought. And we would play games in which uh, the boys had to make the arguments. And, uh, you know, when arguments got really heated, he would start scoring them. And, uh, you know, you would, uh, if you got marked as having the best argument around the dinner table, you felt really proud. And uh, years and years later, I realized that, that all that training meant that I felt that I could walk uh, into uh, any room and hold my own in any argument. And that was, that was a wonderful gift to have gotten. And then I really went into philosophy to step back into that to understand the meaning of life. And I realized at a certain point, after studying philosophy for years, that it wasn't actually going to give me that. And then I thought, well, how do I then take care of life? And I had also fallen in love with biology. And as a boy, I really wanted to be a biologist. And I learned at a certain point when everyone started understanding that the environment was in peril, that I could spend the rest of my life studying wonderful creatures that were disappearing. And um, instead, by going into law, although there wasn't really much by way of environmental law then, I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I thought I would get powerful tools. And let's give some historical context here because when you were studying law at that time, I believe there wasn't a lot of environmental law in America, but also, as you say in the book, even in Europe, they were much further behind America from the 70s, 80s, 90s onwards. It seems like the US at least was leading the way in that time under Nixon, President Nixon. When you started law, what was the uh, environmental law situation or status yeah, well, thanks for the question again. You know, it's, um, it was interesting. The, uh, so the big environmental laws of the modern era really started in the U.S. Uh, during Nixon, as you mentioned. And in 1969, 70, 72, the big laws uh, were passed that are really the basis of environmental regulation there. And I uh, graduated from law school in 1979, so it was still just a few years in. And I went to a really good law school in New York, uh, New York University Law School, but there wasn't even an environmental law course there. So it was so new. And um, I, in my third year of law school, was uh, the editor-in-chief of the Law Review, and I was sitting in my office one day. And one of my colleagues came back and said, hey, James, I just went to this, or I've just finished this great clinical program, which means while a student you go and work with lawyers in some field, I've just finished this great clinical program at an environmental law group, public interest environmental law group called the NRDC. And you've probably never heard of them because they're new, but they do great work uh, to save the planet. They're really brilliant and they're particularly eccentric. So I think you fit right in. And I thought with that advertising line, I had to go and check them out. <laughs> and it was by, uh, with, uh, I started working with these folks and indeed they were wonderful. And their work was wholly dedicated to using the law to protect the planet. So I did things like working on with assisting them. But as just a student, I was working to save the oceans, save the fish, save forests. And that was where I got a taste of how you can use law uh, to save the environment. So this was a very pioneering group. It was only nine years old at that point, but still quite small. And just looking back at it uh, the other day with the people who founded that organization, I realized that in our 10th year at Client Earth now, um, we're just the same size as that great American organization was when it was 10 years old. So um, we have a little over 100 people, and we have offices in three uh, European countries. 
also Beijing and New York, but were about the same size as they were in their 10th year, and they've gone on to grow and grow and are uh, helping to lead the fight against what Trump is now doing in the United States, because there, although they were great leaders in coming up with environmental laws, at the moment, uh, the, the government is uh, trying to eliminate as many of them as it possibly can. And that's one of the things that environmental lawyers can then be very helpful with to try and prevent the good laws from being taken away. Indeed. And perhaps there are some similarities between what happened under Ronald Reagan's leadership and President Trump's, because as it says in the book, Congress set up the Environmental Protection Agency or the EPA in 1970. And it was only about eight or nine years later that uh, that Reagan requested or asked his new appointee and basically suggests that the EPA shouldn't seek to enforce the regulations and laws that protect the environment via litigation and that that would be frowned upon. And so certainly it looked like the EPA was significantly undermined in that period. Do you think there are echoes of that now? Well, yes, uh, there are certainly, and uh, and your characterization is very accurate of what Reagan did. So he realized that he couldn't get rid of the environmental laws uh, entirely, and then so his tactic became to simply not enforce them and to tell industry that he wasn't going to enforce the laws, uh, and they just assumed that they would get away with that. But there were these great provisions uh, in the American environmental laws that allowed citizens to come in and enforce the laws directly against polluting companies when the government wasn't doing it. So as a very young lawyer in my 20s, I went to this place uh, in D.C. where I had been a student and set up a a tiny project. It was just three of us. And uh, the idea was we would see if we could make up the difference. So uh, Reagan had stopped enforcing uh, the laws and we picked the Clean Water Act because it was one of the really important laws protecting the uh, water bodies, primarily rivers and lakes and estuaries. And uh, so you had industrial facilities discharging uh, waste, including hazardous chemicals in these uh, water bodies. And under the law, the Department of Justice had been bringing about 300 cases a year across the country to enforce this law, which creates a compliance uh, culture in which the companies know that they may be caught and they may be prosecuted. That in the Reagan administration's second year, went from over 300 cases a year to zero. So I picked that law, and uh, within six months, we had filed 60 cases, uh, you know, that I did, and then I won all those cases, and we went on then to bring a great many more cases, well over 100, and we won all of those cases. And the result was that companies got the message that they were having somebody look at them. Indeed, the biggest steel company in the world at that point was called Bethlehem Steel, heavily polluting and I brought a case, and after several years in court, uh, we reached a settlement in which they paid what was in those years a very big penalty. And a senior vice president, as we signed the settlement, said to me, son, uh, he was much older than I was, son, we never thought that when the government told us it was okay to go ahead, that citizens like you would be out there watching us and could do something about it. So it was it was astounding. It was really, it was so corrupt and so clear. And... The result of all of our cases, though, was that we embarrassed the government into doing his job again. I was called in by a a new man that was put in to run the Environmental Protection Agency, and uh, I thought I was going to have lunch with him. And I was uh, was a very young person in my 20s, 
And I thought, wow, this is a big deal. I'm going to go have lunch with the head of EPA. What is he going to talk about? And instead, I got there and um, I was ushered into a conference room with well over 100 environmental lawyers working for the government. And uh, he was on a dais and I was on a platform. And he said, Mr. Thornton, while you're having your sandwich, could you give us a seminar on how to bring good environmental cases? Because you're the only one doing it in the country and we seem to have forgotten while you're still carrying the torch. So amazingly, I then gave a seminar to the government lawyers on how to find good environmental cases, how to bring them and how to win them. And they started doing it again. So what I learned from that is that it's possible for a very small group of people uh, using the law, knowing what they were doing and working damn hard to actually make a, a huge difference. And one of the things that I found really interesting was that uh, when you were leading the Citizens Enforcement Project under that group that was set up, as you said, the Natural Resources Defence Council, that it was really driven by such a small amount of people, but there was a huge workload. And in the book, it describes that those who you were looking into would provide so much evidence that you would often get somewhat buried under them, but then utilise it to your own advantage. But clearly, you know, (laughs) you need to dedicate a great deal of your own personal time to something like that and that as you realize it's not going to be sustainable to do that on a long-term basis hence the move to this kind of model that you've created under client earth which seeks to make it more sustainable and as you say look at it from more of an ecosystems perspective rather than individual cases of enforcement though I'm sure that does also come up. Yes, well, uh, you still need to bring the cases, certainly. But what, what we're doing is, I'll tell you about some of the cases we've brought, because you know, a good fight is always exciting when you win. <laughs> um, but uh, and litigation is fun uh, if you're on the good guy's side. But the, uh, the way we approach it is that we look at the, what I call the whole life cycle of law. You start by having a problem you want to address, like climate change or uh, protecting the fisheries so that there are enough fish in the sea 100 years from now. And then once you determine what sort of problem you want to look at, then you study the science. Because the way I look at it, um, the earth and everyone who lives on her really are our clients. So you're my client, you're our client, and the ecosystems. And if the earth is your client, you know how do you speak to her? Because uh, a lawyer needs to speak to their client. And the way I understand the science is how the earth speaks to us. So in the grammar of science that the earth speaks. So you really need to study the science. Sorry, I just wanted to interject because often we might forget that um, traditionally in law, and as you bring up in the book, it's the client who's bringing the case to you. You're not instigating a case just off your own bat generally as a lawyer. And so in that sense, your communication with the earth is extremely important. Well, that's right. And um, you're right to focus on the uh, also the, the different attitude of the public interest lawyers. So we're a charity, so we have to go and raise all of our money and we pay ourselves charity wages. But what that does is it gives us the freedom to be strategic and to say, uh, how can we use law in order to help solve uh, these big environmental questions? So the strategy is yours to develop in order to protect the client, uh, which is the earth and everybody who lives on it. And therefore you turn to the science and you say, what is the science telling us? So one example would be when I was setting up client earth, I saw that in terms of climate change, the scientists were saying the public enemy number one is coal and the use of coal in generating electricity, coal-fired power stations. 
And what we need to do is to move away from coal, particularly in for electricity, and build clean power. So I said, okay, that's uh, the science is very, very, very clear on that. And then, because there were a lot of new coal-fired power stations being built in Europe, uh, I went directly to litigation, and we've stopped a whole generation of coal-fired power stations in the UK and in Poland, so that can be quite effective. You just raised a, a very hot topic here at the moment with the Adani Carmichael coal mine, which I know you've commented on in a previous interview, and Australia still relying a lot on our exports to other countries for coal. Yeah, and um, it's a shame to see it, and it's uh, it's a very very bad direction that the uh, that the government uh, there is, is pursuing. So much are they uh, not acting in the public interest that they're uh, spending something like a billion in order to build the rail track from the Adani mine to the coast, uh, which is uh, nonsense. The Adani mine really, on its own, can't compete in the market. So it, if it's going to be built, it will rely on these enormous public subsidies. And just imagine that. So the taxpayers are spending. Uh, enormous sums, a billion for the rail track alone, in order to create this mine, which can't pay for itself, but which will contribute uh, more global carbon pollution than most other things in the world. It makes absolutely no sense. And the shame is seeing that such a uh, such a smart first world country as Australia, and I was just there, we were just there for about a month. And you know, we totally fell in love with Australia. How can you not? <laughs> and then you see everything that you need to protect and you need to help. And uh, the idea then of uh, relying on this very ancient coal-burning technology, which will help destroy uh, Australia, despite what people like Mr. Abbott say, uh, it just makes no sense. Uh, Australia also was one of the sunniest places in the world and could easily be leading the, the world in uh, clean tech. Um, you know, you could be generating enormous amounts of energy uh, with solar power. Uh, you could be producing hydrogen that you can press and sell uh, on the market. And it would be endless. All it takes is imagination. It does. And uh, we've also undermined the CSIRO, which is our government-funded science and innovation organization. So I think that's also a problem as well. It's part of a broader conservative agenda in terms of the approach to climate change here. But it would be helpful if we had people like those who work at Client Earth. Are you working at all in the space in Australia? Well, I hope we can help there. Uh, there are some really good environmental lawyers, as you mentioned at the beginning of our talk uh, in Australia at yeah. uh, the Environmental Defenders yeah. Office, um, but there aren't, <clears throat> there aren't enough of them. And uh, they do bring good cases. And indeed, they've been challenging the, uh, the Adani mine. But uh, to go back to how we work. So we start with science and then we develop policy. Uh, we work with all kinds of groups, uh, to, with industry, with government, with other environmental organizations, scientists to develop policy, uh, say again, to stop climate change or protect fisheries. And then once the policy is in place to show what the direction should be, then we uh, work in the parliaments to help write the law. And we've been writing lots of laws in uh, in Brussels, which writes uh, laws the European Parliament for all of Europe, and then also in different member states like Poland and the UK and so on. And then once you have the law in place, then you work to implement the law, so to make the law work, because you can write a law, uh, but then if the only people who are arguing with the government about how it should be implemented uh, is industry, what will happen is the law gets interpreted by the government in favor of industry because there's nobody on the other side and the voice of industry is very powerful. So we spend a lot of time also working to make sure that good laws are then properly 
implemented and finally enforced. And that's where you get to the excitement of cases. So if you have a, um, if you have a good law that is being ignored, then you simply need to, to go and enforce it. And uh, in Europe, we've been bringing a series of air quality cases because the governments have uh, refused to uh, comply with the air quality law. And across Europe, um, the European Commission uh, says that there are about 400,000 people a year who die early of air pollution. And in the UK, where our headquarters is, it's uh, over 40,000 a year. Really unacceptable. And we're using litigation to uh, to stop that. And, and we're winning. But to go back to your question about Australia, yeah, we have one lawyer now uh, working in Australia for some months. And she, uh, as I did when I was there, uh, is meeting with uh, lots of uh, Australian environmental organizations, with uh, politicians uh, who are interested in protecting the environment. And we'll see. I hope we can help there and make a, make a contribution. I just got a lovely email this morning from Christine Milner, who is the former head of the Green Party. And, uh, you know, we, we spent uh, hours together discussing our visions of how to make a cleaner, healthier society when we were there. And she hosted a book event for us for our client earth book uh, in Hobart. So I feel like in just a few weeks in Australia, we made a lot of friends and I feel very strongly that we need to try and do something to help. Well, that's good to hear because I know you would have a lot of friends, certainly in our community, even uh, at Triple R and beyond in Melbourne. There are so many people passionate about the environment, but often feeling like they don't know what to do except, you know, sign a petition or voice their concern to their local member of parliament. And this is really a whole other element that often isn't pursued by citizens in particular or even by environmental lawyers because of the obviously that funding issue is huge. When you're in America, the process of bringing litigation was different. And then when you moved to the UK, there was a significant lack of agency for individuals or not-for-profits to be able to bring cases forward against governments or organisations that were potentially in breach of an environmental law. And I know you played an important role in making it more accessible for people to do that and that you also had certain decisions to make in terms of your role as a lawyer in the UK? Mm. Well, I guess the first one was uh, I decided I had to become uh, a UK lawyer and requalify here. And that was a fascinating process um, because it allowed me to have an intimate look at the UK legal system. Uh, I thought I needed, if I was going to work in the EU, to be uh, to become familiar with and really know the inside of at least one legal system and then be able to move out from that to study others. So that was a, a laborious process of becoming a UK lawyer. <laughs> but, but I did that. And then what, what, what did surprise me, you know, I naively moved to the uh, EU as, as an American thinking, oh, Europe is so sophisticated. There are going to be lots of environmental lawyers uh, doing the kind of work I do. And courts will welcome citizens to come through their doors to defend the environment. Well, I was surprised to find out that there weren't really any environmental lawyers doing this kind of work in Europe, which then allowed planet Earth to happen. But also uh, in the UK, um, in particular, but other places too, it could be very difficult to get into court to fight for environmental rights. And in the UK, the reason was the rules around costs. And this applies in many uh, instances in Australia as well. That's one of the unfortunate heritages uh, from uh, the UK. Well, if you go into court and you sue somebody and you lose, you pay all of their costs and fees uh, is the general rule. And uh, in the UK, commercial lawyers are enormously expensive, so that can be uh, 
crippling cost, and as a result, even really well-funded organizations weren't bringing uh, cases. So one of the first things we did was to work on changing that rule, which has been somewhat successful, although the government is pushing back and once again trying to make it harder. Now, the interesting thing on access to justice is uh, for the environment, there's the most uh, exciting uh, new opportunity in this regard is in China. You know, I was welcomed into China in 2014, or invited in. The uh, Chinese had just passed a new law that would allow, uh, as of 2015, Chinese environmental organizations to bring cases against polluting companies, just like I was doing during the Reagan administration in the U.S. And um, the Supreme Court of China is the entity then that writes all the detailed rules about how to make the law work, who can bring cases and what you have to pay to the other side if you lose and what the rules of evidence are and all of those very important things. And uh, they invited me in to uh, advise them on that. And, uh, and I did. And uh, in my first meeting with them and seminar I was giving, I said, wow, this is really revolutionary what you're doing. And they said, hmm, revolution is a big word for us here, (laughs) which was delightful. But uh, but indeed, it was a huge change. And then I was able to help them write very good rules so that in China now, you have greater access to justice uh, to sue a polluting company than you do in the UK. And, you know, if you lose, you pay nothing to the other side because they consider that the environmental group is doing a public service, which indeed they are. So we've seen now, just in the last year or so, a year and a half that the law has been in place, that even though the Chinese environmental NGOs are very new, and there aren't many of them, and they don't have anything like the money that they do in the West, nevertheless, they've brought something like 70 cases, uh, and they're winning them. And prosecutors are also now bringing environmental cases under the same law on behalf of the people. And they've brought several thousand. So you have a revolution going on there now, if they would let me use that word, a sea change, let's say, in which having made the decision to clean up the environment, which they know is in terrible shape, they're really pursuing it. And they are eager to create a compliance culture in which companies know for the first time that they won't get away with violating environmental regulations. And what's exciting is that citizen groups are going to play a a real part in this so that they'll be empowered, they are now empowered, to bring cases, and they're doing it. And again, I I really want to help them because there's so much to do. Well, it seems like almost the ideal to be able to come in and start from scratch, really, about what rules you're going to create for such a mechanism. And it's interesting. I wonder if that is really quite well suited to the Chinese in terms of uh, its focus on making sure that everyone is taken care of, which is still you know, part of the communist philosophy. Yes. And um, what uh, the officials are, are very aware of is that they not only need to clean up the environment, but they need to be uh, seen to be cleaning up the environment because people are so very, very upset about it, and certainly correctly so. So that by empowering uh, citizens' groups to bring cases, they're really empowering citizens to get involved. And then uh, they make it as easy as possible with the court rules and the, uh, the rules on fees. So they've really opened the door as much as they possibly can. And they're also aware that the corruption is a big problem, particularly the further away you get from Beijing, uh, the harder it is for the central government to control things. And it has always been thus, you know, when you read Chinese history, but it's certainly still that way today. So their feeling is that by allowing citizens to bring cases, that a lot of cases will be brought that otherwise just would never happen. And 
back to my experience in the Reagan administration, when the big steel company says, we, we just didn't think citizens were watching. Now we know differently. I hope that same thing happens uh, in China, where companies that felt like they could get away with things will realize that citizens are not just watching, but they can actually do something now and they can go to court and achieve huge penalties against the companies and court orders to clean up. So what's interesting is that, and one of the things we explore in the book, is that this attitude towards cleaning up the environment emerged really strongly in the U.S. during the Nixon years uh, in the 70s, and then in Europe about 10 years later, in the 80s, when they passed uh, very good laws uh, here in Europe. And in America now, we're seeing a backlash. In Europe, there's also something of a backlash as well. People are trying to slow it down now. Uh, But in China, they've had this real enlightenment about the need to clean up because the situation is so bad. And uh, they're doing everything they can, and they're going around the world, and it's not just me, but experts from all over the world, uh, and including from Australia, many are being invited into China to advise and to try and help them how to design a system that uh, delivers results. They, they even have a notion that they call building an ecological civilization. And uh, it's not just a slogan. They've actually, with this concept of ecological civilization, they've broken it down into eight components, which include things like building a new economics, building a new agricultural policy, a new industrial policy, revising our legal system. And I've been advising them on that legal system part. But they've put hundreds of their best intellectuals on this project of how do we redesign things so that society really will be sustainable. And it's far beyond anything that's happening in the West. You know, these the brightest people in Paris, London, and Washington aren't working on building an ecological civilization, but they are in China. And it's my great hope that they get it right because we need it. And the torch has really passed from the United States to Europe to uh, to China now in terms of being leaders uh, on the environment. That's a really inspiring story and something which I think is not well known, at least here. And it reminds me of something that you write, which I found uh, resonated with me and resonates for our situation in Australia, which is that you said we need a positive vision. And you say, I use the word vision consciously to suggest something beyond the rational and that uh, we need to move beyond rational argument to enable these changes to take place for behaviour to change. We need a bigger picture idea of where we're going or a story in order to create movement and certainly not be uh, driven by anger, as you also say, but to gain energy from it, uh, but not be consumed by it. Could you share a bit more about that particular idea of having a vision and it being a positive one? Mm, So... As an environmentalist, you know, much of my life, uh, I was very, very angry about what was happening to um, people's health, to the environment, um, and to the future that was being stolen from our children. And um, that's very understandable. And all the environmentalists that I knew were also angry, and that's what motivated them. They, their love of the planet motivated them, um, and their anger at what um, what was happening. I, I once did a research project in which I interviewed about 100 uh, environmental activists, and every one of them you know, was, um, was angry in that way. And uh, at the same time, anger really is, uh, is exhausting. So um, if you want to be sustainable yourself, you need to understand the roots of the anger, and uh, they're quite reasonable. But then you need to be able to move beyond it, because what we need is a positive vision, as you're saying. And what we work at at Client Earth all the time is 
a uh, pragmatic and positive solutions to what look like intractable problems. And you can't have a positive solution. You can't move into that solution space if you're angry. You know, anger is a, is a different thing. Anger is a fight mode. And you need to be able to come up with creative solutions. Uh, so you need to move beyond it. And anger doesn't take you to convincing people to move together in, into the future. People uh, do need a story. I mean, I, I sometimes think that when Aristotle, uh, to go back to philosophy, when Aristotle called us the rational animal, uh, he was really missing the point because we're really the storytelling animal. You know, it's it's story that motivates things. And when I was in Australia, um, the fairly limited contact with the uh, the wonderful Aboriginal uh, stories were very deep. And every culture has its stories. And the story our culture has come up with, you might call it neoliberal capitalism, um, in which we're all assigned the role of consumers, is a very is a very bleak and demotivating story, which contributes to uh, the destruction of the environment that we see around us. It's not a way to move into the future. And if we come up with uh, the right story, and I hope ecological civilization may be it, then people are motivated by by hope in a positive direction. And then you can see, oh, of course, of course we can get there. Of course we can move away from using coal and decarbonize our electricity system. You know, of course we can do whatever is necessary to get there because the future looks beautiful. Now, one of the things that is really disappointing about Trump becoming president is you know, America was in pretty good shape other than, I mean, there are a lot of problems. Guns is a problem. Huge disparity in wealth is a problem. It wasn't without problems. But um, when he came in saying it was all terrible, wrong. But if it's all terrible and you make people angry, 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 you can also control them, which is what he's been working on. But if you have instead hope as a motivator and a positive vision to give you a direction to the future, then you have a very different world. And that's a world that we can co-create. And that's what excites me. It is really exciting for me too, because here, and I'm sure it happens elsewhere, the environment is seen as some kind of separate category when it comes to policy making and to political visions in particular. And it rarely becomes an election topic of debate at all. Whereas in the book, you say that environmental problems are human problems and they arise from our conduct. And with a vision like that, clearly creating an ecological civilization requires us to have the environment or an environmental lens on every policy that we are creating mm. and, and the vision that we construct. So to me, I think that's a really important contribution that you're making. The environment isn't some kind of separate portfolio or thing that we sometimes need to care about because it's just the right thing to do. It is intrinsically tied to us. Absolutely. And to uh, every, everything we do uh, is part of the environment. We are part of the environment. And unless we respect it through the policies uh, we create, through the laws we create, and through all of our activities, uh, we get the kind of problems that we're, we're living with and, and need to change. Now, this has actually been recognized, interestingly, uh, in the, um, the treaty that forms the basis of the European Union. And it's called the integration principle, which is not a very sexy way to talk about it. But the, uh, the idea is that um, the environment uh, needs to be integrated into every policy-making role across the entire spectrum. And that's the requirement of the European Treaty, but it hasn't actually worked. Um, it was understood, but it hasn't been put into practice. And the 
best hope I think we have for seeing the economy and uh, agricultural policy and so on redesigned with the idea that it must fit within the sustainable limits uh, of the local and global ecosystem is really what the Chinese are doing now because uh, we have a lot of the information we need uh, to do this, but the experiments have been few uh, and the experiment is starting in China. And that's going to be a great case study to follow. I want to, just as a, a couple of final topics, I'm a bit of a tree lover and I was interested to see that the philanthropist <coughs> who has been so critical in this venture, Michael McIntosh, is a major tree lover himself and uh, and that you said to this day he admits uh, he's more affected by the way we treat trees than the way we treat people. And I was um, really yeah. interested in that because I'm somewhat the same. <laughs> I've been a little bit obsessed <laughs> with trees here and native forests and uh, and we have a big problem here with native forest logging and old growth forests and the endangered species that are now really threatened by logging constantly every day. And so I was interested in the case that you have been involved with uh, in Poland with the primeval forest there and its significance and how that case went and, and what is happening now with that forest and the logging that's been occurring there. Mm, yeah, I mean, the Forests are really under threat uh, globally. And again, this is something that doesn't have to be happening. Uh, it's um, you know, greed and stupidity uh, that makes it happen. But in, in Europe, there's really only one great primeval forest left. You know, when I was in Tasmania, uh, I realized that what was wonderful is to see how much is still left and how much is there to protect. Uh, and in other places in Australia, too, we were in Queensland. And it's remarkable how much there is that's worth fighting for. Uh, there. But this fight is going on everywhere. And in Poland, uh, as I say, there's really only one primeval forest left uh, on the European continent, and it's in Poland. And it's an amazing forest. It goes back to the Ice Age. And it's a mixture of uh, deciduous and uh, and conifers. And it has a whole range of, uh, of endangered species, including it's the only place on Earth where uh, forest bison still live. Uh, amazing. And um, a very right-wing government has gotten into Poland about a year and a half ago. And uh, they are they're a very scary group. I mean, they're out to uh, destroy democracy. Uh, they tried to simply take over the entire court system um, and fire everybody who wasn't one of their cronies. And that was stopped, at least for now. But uh, right-wing governments uh, love to cut trees. And I, I don't understand the connection, but it's, it seems inevitable. And they're uh, logging in the in the forest, and uh, and it's perfectly illegal under um, all the applicable European laws. But uh, uh, the way they did it made them unchallengeable in the Polish courts. So we persuaded uh, the European Commission to uh, go to the European Court and get a cease and desist order against the government. And uh, that's rarely done, but they did it. And uh, that order was gained a few weeks ago. And remarkably, the Polish government has refused to obey it. This is the first time that any European government has ever refused to uh, obey an injunction from the European court. So Poland is basically going to war with Europe over their right to illegally cut down a primeval forest. You know, imagine that. So uh, we then said to Europe, uh, to the European Commission, please go back to the European court and ask the court for enormous penalties, which you can do. Uh, against Poland, and they have done that, uh, and Poland has about another week uh, to respond. But if they uh, if they fail to comply, and the court imposes the penalties, which I think they will do, simply to uh, they need to uh, in order to protect their own authority, really, uh, 
they have then the capacity to deduct those uh, penalties, which could be hundreds and hundreds of millions, from the uh, money that flows from Europe into Poland. So when it begins to hit them in the pocketbook, they'll wind up paying far more for every tree they cut than they get by illegally cutting them. Then they may stop. But that's the sort of uh, thing you need to engineer if you want to, in, in those circumstances, if you want to protect a forest. So without the ability to understand what the law was and to persuade Europe that it needed to act, which it rarely does, you know, we, there would have been no hope of protecting the forest. And uh, now there's quite a lot of hope, I think. That's true. I mean, that does seem like a very effective penalty, especially because you have that deduction method. You don't have to wait for Poland to decide to pay the EU the penalty. Mm. How large is the penalty that's been proposed? Well, we don't know yet. I mean, the court would determine the penalty, but uh, the law allows uh, the penalty to be in the hundreds of millions of euros uh, because it can roll over from day to day to day to day to day to day until it's paid or in this case, until they give it time, pull in time to comply. And if they don't, then they can terminate the calculation. Uh, but it will be potentially enormously high. I just want to now look finally at your firm, Client Earth, and how it fits within the legal profession itself over there. Because I know you've won quite a few awards, particularly through the Financial Times. And very recently, I believe, only in the last week, um, you've won a couple. And I just want to understand whether your firm is now placed among other major law firms that may not necessarily have the same model as yours, but it, it is seen as a significantly effective and, and highly important important uh, firm among the other more traditional commercial firms? Yeah, this has been really important for uh, us because um, we are a charity. So we raise all of our money from, uh, from donors and um, we have departments like forests and fisheries and climate change. Commercial law firms, of course, have paying clients and uh, paying enormous fees. And they have departments like mergers and acquisitions and real estate and things like that. And um, it was it was a wonderful surprise when the Financial Times, in its annual review of law firms, uh, decided that we would be uh, listed among them. And then uh, just last week, as you were mentioning, they determined that in their calculation, uh, among all global law firms working in Europe, which is really all global law firms, uh, we were ranked uh, 35 uh, in the top 50. And that's really incredible for a, a relatively small charity. And it shows that the work that we do is innovative and really high quality. There's no doubt in my mind that the work we do is at the same level as the law firms. But it's also more interesting because uh, the work we do is uh, all of it is brand new. You know, uh, none of it's ever been done before. We have to invent the intellectual property around uh, whatever it is that we work on. And law firms tend to do, you know, the same thing over and over. So we have... Whenever we have a new opening, a tremendous number of really smart young people who want to come and join us and they say, well, this is what we want to do with our life and there's no other place in Europe uh, to do it other than client earth, can I join you? So we're training a whole new generation of people to, to think about how to use the law uh, to protect people and, and the world in this way. And in, in a way, that's uh, one of the most exciting things, or maybe the most exciting thing, that there will be this army of people who have these tools uh, and who want to use them for the good. 
That's really um, That's wonderful and inspiring story and important development. It's amazing that you are you reached that 35 and congratulations on that. It's um, a huge testament to uh, what you've achieved so far in just 10 years. And just finally, in terms of your personal relationship to the environment and how it nourishes you, I know that you've been very much interested in poetry and meditation and you've mentioned philosophy. How have you been nourished by nature? and what kind of positive effect has it had on your life? Well, uh, a very deeply positive one. And uh, I I think every human being is uh, innately very deeply connected to the natural world. And you can see it. Any kid who is lucky enough to be in nature loves it, you know. And um, I think the same is true for every adult if they open up. And uh, it has been, you know, uh, absolutely central to me. I've been studying Zen for 35 years or more. And... um, after many years of study with a Japanese Zen master, uh, Martin, my husband, uh, met him for the first time and said, thank you for your teachings, which are so important to James. And um, the Zen master said, I'm not James's teacher. Nature is his teacher. And that's that's really true. So when I was in Australia, uh, people asked me uh, why I was there. And uh, I said, well, we've just spent 10 days in the rainforest in Queensland. Uh, and you can see what I'm doing is I'm visiting my client. And uh, that's the way it feels for me, that there's a, a very deep dialogue that happens with the natural world whenever you're uh, in, in connection with it. And, uh, of course, that's best and easiest to feel when you're in a beautiful virgin uh, country. But it's also true in a suburban walk, or it's also true when I water the uh, carnivorous plant uh, in my kitchen. You know, it's uh, any connection like that is immediate and real, and it gets you out of the... Uh, the small space of uh, one's own ego and one's own problems to consider your connection with the rest of everything because who we are, of course, is not just uh, what we see uh, as the limits of our skin but is our interconnection with the entire world. It is so interactive, isn't it? I almost feel like sometimes I'm in conversation with nature when I'm walking around the bush or being surrounded by native birds and uh, they come up to you and, and you, have, you feel like you have a real connection, some kind of unspoken connection between each other. Absolutely. I am crazy about birds and the, the birds in Australia were so wonderful. We saw together 281 species of birds. Most of them, of course, were new to us because... Uh, if you come from somewhere else, everything in Australia is completely wonderful, completely crazy, and completely new. So all of these, uh, all of these wonderful creatures that we just saw again and again, and the most powerful, perhaps, uh, in terms of the um, experience of the bird was to uh, to see a cassowary uh, very close, and it took us several days to find one. So there was a quest element, and then uh, we eventually found a, a male cassowary with his three chicks. And um, it was uh, deeply moving. And I, I really felt like that uh, connection was uh, also being with a teacher. You know, I learned a lot and I, I still think about him all the time. Thank you so much, James, uh, for opening up my mind and our minds to the different ways that we can approach nature and also approach activism and making change. Um, I think it's such a unique and innovative solution and certainly should be taken up more here if possible. And I really want to congratulate you on that. And I can't wait to follow all the exciting litigation that you will continue to pursue to protect your client. Thank you very much indeed. 
And that was my interview with founding CEO of Client Earth, James Thornton. He is the co-author of the book Client Earth with his husband, Martin Goodman, and uh, he's currently based in the UK, uh, in London. And James joined me via Skype from London, from his home there, and was so generous uh, with his stories and insights. And really, um, I truly mean it's very inspiring to hear his vision around uh, how we can make change, because often it feels like we're lacking um, many tools in in the arsenal uh, of activism and really uh, the law is one thing which seems inaccessible, uh, should be made more accessible and could be, uh, as as we've seen here, um, another way to protect the earth and James's client, the earth. So I'm um, pretty jealous that, <laughs> that that's his client. It seems like a pretty good gig as a lawyer and also good to see that uh, environmental philanthropy is al- alive and well in uh, in the UK and America. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.